Good morning, church. Thank you, team, for music ministry this morning. It is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Holy Week. What a wonderful time to contemplate and think about all the joys that go into this time of year and are part of uh, Resurrection and Resurrection Week. And we have a new verse for this month. If I can get going the right way, we'll get to it. I'm going the wrong way. Here we go. I think. No? Where are we at here? Am I going the wrong way? I don't know which way I'm going now. Can you help me in the back, please? <laughs> okay. There it is. Look at that. New memory verse. It is from the book of Exodus as we continue to work through it together. Exodus Chapter 20, verse 20, let's say it together. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Exodus 29, 46. Very good. Well, happy Palm Sunday to everyone. We continue to work through the book of Exodus. And as we begin this morning, I want to reflect on a time... Uh, many years ago. In fact, for me, it was about 20 to 25 years ago. I was a young man, uh, not wanting to embrace the realities that come along with graduating from high school and growing up in college. You remember, as you get older, you start to get older, uh, your body doesn't work the way that it used to, and I was only between 20 or 25 years old, but I could already tell that getting old wasn't going to be much fun. We had a tradition, a group of us, we would get together at Peckway Elementary School. Some of you know where that is in the rolling hills of Peckway. And behind the elementary school, there was a field that was perfect for football. Perfect. Now, most of us had played football in high school. We were no longer playing. The problem was we were no longer doing much of anything. And it was Thanksgiving break, and we would get together behind the high school to play football, knowing that the next day, when we woke up, we would all feel like we had been hit by a Mack truck. It's just the way that it worked. Our bodies did not recover the same way as they did when we were in high school. And over the years, as we would gather and play uh, and have fun with one another, the next morning we would all wake up and call each other and say, how are you feeling today? Oh, not so good, man. Not so good. That's just the way it went. It was tackle football, even without pads on. And probably for us, since it was Thanksgiving break, we were all wearing shorts and sleeveless shirts, very much underdressed and hoping that the running around on the field was going to be enough to keep us warm. We were gathering for the purpose of relating to one another and learning how to love one another through the game of football. Most of the guys who were gathering were believers. In fact, at, at this point, I think all the guys that were gathering at that time were believers. They knew the Lord. And the rules of the game of football are set. Those who show up who want to participate, they need to play according to the rules. And it would not have worked very well if we showed up behind Peckway Elementary School to play football if a guy showed up to the game with a tennis racket and said, I'm here to play football. It wouldn't have worked. 
Now, we, we may have all run away from him, depending on what his intent was with the tennis racket, but you can't play football with a tennis racket. They don't go together. Since the rules of the game of football are set, those who showed up and wanted to play, who wanted to participate, they needed to play according to the rules, or they were risking dishonoring the game and disrupting the lives of those who were endeavoring to play according to its precepts. And in a similar vein, the same applies to anyone who wanted to be part of the nation of Israel and worship and follow Yahweh, the one true living God. For this reason, a law was needed. And for this purpose, God established and gave the people a code or a covenant. The giving of the law was first an act of love, mercy, compassion, and grace. God desired a real and vibrant living relationship with his people. And yet, his people coming out of a land where they were taught ways and customs and religions that uh, included idol worship and polytheism, they didn't know how to relate to this God. How did Yahweh, the living God, desire to be related to and worshipped? And of equal importance to Yahweh, how were the people to relate to and love one another. In the law, the people were going to find guidance on how to order and direct themselves, how to relate to their God and how to protect and preserve their nation, their people, and the resources that their God was giving them. The law was also going to serve as a reminder of who the people were ultimately accountable to. This is Israel's declaration of dependence. It is a declaration as relevant and useful today as it was when it was first given. We pick up again in the second movement of our study through the book of Exodus, where we're looking at how God formed the nomadic and tribal Hebrew people into the nation of Israel. And when we last left off a few weeks ago, we had together with Moses and the Hebrew people come to the base of Mount Sinai. The people had walked through the chaos of the waters. They had wandered through the early uncertainties and turmoil of the wilderness. And as we journeyed with the people, we found ourselves as guests at the base of Mount Sinai in a covenantal ceremony. If you remember, all the way back before conference, we were in chapters 18 and 19, and they were loaded up with movement. The people were going up and coming down the mountain. God himself was moving through smoke and flame. There was a special manifestation of his presence coming to rest upon the mountain. As we move into chapter 20 today, we know this chapter. It's famously read and interpreted as the Ten Commandments. And as we approach these commandments today, there are three primary questions that we are going to endeavor to navigate together. First, how was the law received by the people it was given to? Why did they need it? And what did it mean for them? Second, in what ways would God use the law to 
inform and shape the identity of his people? And finally, how might we, the church today, relate to, display, and apply the law in our worlds? As we approach God's word, we're in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there a while. Before we read, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help as we study his word together. Father, it is Palm Sunday. On this day, we reflect on and we remember when your son rode towards Jerusalem and the people had very little idea how to relate to him. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. And just a little bit later, crucify, crucify. So confused. So disoriented. And Lord, we see ourselves in them. With one breath, we cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And with the next, our lives may cry out, crucify, crucify. Lord, as we approach your word today, we know it is living, we know it is active, and we know that your spirit is working. That he uses it to apply to each one of us what we need to help form us into the image of your son, Jesus. He is the exact and perfect representation of who you endeavor for us to be. Lord, we can't do it without your help. We need you every step of the way. This is a hard, difficult wilderness that we've been placed in. But you are still a good and kind and loving God. And so help us order our lives properly around the precepts in your word. And may your spirit move us to make a difference in the places that you've planted us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 20, we're going to read the first 17 verses, the Ten Commandments as we know them today. God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. God is giving his law to the people at this pivotal and specific point in their history so that they would know both who they belonged to and how they were to relate to the one to whom they belonged. The covenantal ceremony that began in chapter 19 continues to unfurl all the way through chapter 24. First, the Ten Commandments here in chapter 20, then the judgments in chapters 21 to 23, and then finally, the inauguration of the covenant in chapter 24. All of these chapters brought together to form one cohesive and contextual unit in this book of Exodus. And a big idea that should guide our understanding and our interpretation of this entire unit might be formed as such. If the people were to be called and identified as a kingdom of priests, then they needed to get on understanding what that kingdom was going to look like, how it was to function, both as it related to God and one another. And what was known in the minds of the people regarding the priesthood, it would have largely been informed and influenced by their time in captivity in Egypt. But the priesthood of Egypt functioned in a dramatically, in a very different way than the priesthood that God was calling the people to inhabit. Egypt's priests, they were powerless. We remember back in the plagues, they were powerless in the face of God. And besides, for the Egyptian priests, only certain types of people qualified. Not every Egyptian, according to their religious custom, could be a priest or a priestess. The priesthood of Israel would not relate to multiple gods like it did in Egypt. Rather, they would be formed and fueled and focused in their relationship with the one true living God. This much is established from the very first words in verse 2 when God says, I, the Lord, am your God. I have brought you and bought you through the water and the blood from the house of slavery in Egypt. It wasn't just that God was delivering his people out of bondage, but also that he was moving with them towards something that was so much greater. There was, within their vision, within their grasp, an inheritance that was promised. It was known as the promised land. And this new kingdom of priests, they had to be shaken out of their old and lifeless ways of worship and community. The imaginations, the hearts, and the minds of the people, they needed to be shaped and stretched and sharpened towards a new and more life-giving way 
of life and worship. And so God begins by reminding the people that they belong to him. They will be his priest, his holy or set-apart nation, his children. And how marvelously comforting, friends. How comforting this should be for those of us who are being transformed or reformed or renewed within this wilderness. That we belong to the all-knowing, ever-present, patient, kind, and loving King of all creation. We are His. And the question may be, how does this God that we belong to desire for us to relate to Him? And this is the beginning of the law in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God is first. Amen? This is how it needs to be. This is the ordering, the right ordering of things. God is first. And again, from their historical past in Egypt, the people would have known of many other false gods. How would you have ordered all those countless gods? They existed, and many other gods existed throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, but they weren't the one true living God. And for the people of Israel, those gods simply were no longer available to them, nor did they need them. Yahweh was enough. Amen? He's still enough today. Is that not right? He's right. It's, it's, it's right. He's enough today. A second temptation then is dealt with in the second command. From their time in Egypt, the gods always had a physical representation. The people who were in Egypt enslaved the Hebrew people. When there were gods in Egypt, they could see what they looked like visibly. Something crafted by the hands of the ones who served the gods. So verse 4 expresses that idols in any form or likeness of God were not needed or permitted. Any idol made by human hands is lifeless. And therefore, it's an inaccurate representation of the God who is filled up with life. A lifeless idol cannot represent a life-giving God. It doesn't work. And as the text continues, if idols were not to be crafted, then it follows that no idol was to be bowed down to or served. It's here where God communicates his jealousy. Look at verse 5. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God's glory is to be honored. And from an earthly perspective, God's honor is held up within the life of his people. Creation sings his praises. God is the only one. Yahweh was the only one, is the only one worthy of praise. That's it. It's humanity, us, as the gem of God's creation. We are to offer ceaseless praise and thanksgiving to his name alone. 
And as the only true living God, he has every right to be jealous when his creation sings or gives praise to gods who are less than him. Absolutely. Verses 4 to 6 reveal that idolatry is not only forbidden, but its consequences are generational. And God's judgment against idolatry would trickle down through multiple generations. We watch this happen as the Old Testament unfolds when generations of Israelites from both the northern and southern kingdoms would find generation after generation in captivity, largely due to the idolatry of their ancestors. In their, in their captivity, Israelite children, they would be born, they would be raised, and they would be influenced by a religious system and institution that did not worship Yahweh. And those who chased after and followed other gods, rejected, rejecting Yahweh, they would face judgment. While others who were faithful, they would experience his love and protection and provision. The third command then is found in verse 7, and it's building on the foundation of the second. If God is jealous for his glory, then it also makes sense that he would be jealous for the honor of his name. It is a name that is not to be used or taken in vain. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself demonstrates the importance of this command? When he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? Our Father who art in heaven, what about his name? Hallowed, sacred, holy be your name. The name of God is not to be used, applied, spoken, or otherwise treated in a meaningless or frivolous manner. We're to be careful with his name because his name is connected to his glory. When talking about this, I've heard lots of different folks uh, over the years talk about what it means to take the, the Lord's name in vain. When we use the name of God, it should always be in a way that fills up or magnifies his name rather than empties his name of life or meaning. If we use the name of God in any way that does not glorify him or invite other people to experience his power or his awe or his wonder or his presence, then we may be guilty of taking his name in vain. And I think it's interesting, these these first three commands, one of the, the observations I make as I go through them is, is that they firmly establish that this covenant that God was making with the Israelite people was a covenant that was built on love. God's love for his people and his people reciprocating their love and gratitude back towards him as he has defined it. And it's amazing. And Paul sees this in the New Testament. He even talks about it in Acts. Yahweh's not a God who requires images or idols or temples or incantations or prescriptions. He's not a God who can be managed or manipulated by human hands. He's a God above all other gods. The one who has no physical representation but Christ Jesus. The one whose name is to be honored 
and lifted high. So relating to God in this manner is very much part and parcel of how we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And when a people and a nation worship and relate to God alone, we begin or should begin to look very differently from the other nations around us who worship and relate to many different gods. This is how it's supposed to work for Israel. Israel was surrounded by polytheistic nations. Israel was surrounded by people who worshiped lots of other gods that were represented by different types of idols and all different representations of the ways people related to them. Israel was to look different in the world, to stand out, to be set apart, to be sanctified, holy, full participants of worshiping the one true living God. These are the first three commands. There are seven more. And if we're to rightly relate to God, we have to embrace the truth that rightly relating to God involves both a care and a love for God, but also a care for ourselves and a love for those that he places us in community with. And this is what we see in the next series of commands. Take a look at verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath. Set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or the resident foreigner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. When Jesus came, he actually said this, Mark chapter 2, 27. Jesus said to the people, the Sabbath was made for people. Not people for the Sabbath. For this is the reason the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Friends, God made the Sabbath. He gave the command of the Sabbath out of his love for his people. One priority that God had for his people is that they would have, they would find, and they would take time to rest. And this sets Yahweh up as a God who is very different than other gods of the ancient Near East. This is very interesting. There has been much scholarship done on this commandment because in ancient Near Eastern religions, this commandment within Judaism sets Judaism apart from every other ancient religion in the world. Sabbath. It makes us different. Now, we're not Jews. We are the church. Um, some of us may be Messianic Jews, but for the church today, applying and having a Sabbath, a day of rest, it's something that can cause us to look different to stand out in a world that doesn't very much appreciate rest. How about it? What do you see in your world, in your culture? 
Do you see or do you feel like you live in a place that appreciates and values rest unto the Lord? I certainly don't. When I was young, I know some of you laughed. They're like, you're still young. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective. My kids call me old. <laughs> I remember a time when everything, everything, I can still remember a time when everything was closed on a Sunday. Everything. It was a day of rest. Now I recognize that there are certain professions, certain industries where we, we don't have that. There's people need to be cared for. Nurses, doctors oftentimes need to work. Uh, full-time caregivers oftentimes need to work on Sundays and we have to find other places for that rest, but commercial businesses and places uh, that we're operating um, just were not open. But boy, has our world, has our culture changed. Rest is not a respected priority in our world and culture anymore. In fact, in the world I live in with, with the guys that I pal around with a lot, to be honest with you, uh, a lot of times rest is kind of like, what are you doing? You got to be out there doing something. Like, what do you mean you're resting? What's that? Wait, what do you mean you take a day off? Like, it's, it's like, a, a, like almost like a shameful thing. Friends, that is not at all what God intended for his people. God desires for his people to find rest. Now, our ultimate rest is found in Christ Jesus. He's secured it for us. We can be a restful people Every single day. But that also does not mean that we should not specifically set aside or prioritize or focus in our calendar a time for us to have Sabbath. I don't know about you, but for me, if I don't put it on my calendar, if it's not written down somewhere, it's probably not getting done. We simply do not prioritize rest. And, and I believe that that's something that uh, in our culture, especially in the church, if that's part of our church culture, it makes us malformed. God desires for his people to rest, and we have to prioritize it. It won't just happen in today's world. It doesn't. They don't allow it. Um, isn't it funny? Our culture doesn't allow us to rest. Always busy, busy. What's next? What's next? Do more, accomplish more, get more done. It's not how God intended these commands, they relate to our community formation. They begin with rest and they move towards honor. Look at verse 12. Start with rest, Sabbath, move to honor. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother that you may live a long time in the land that your Lord God has given you. The honor of one's parents, it was not only a command that was given to children. It was a command that was given to an entire nation, adults and children. We sometimes look at that command and we look at our kids and say, see, you're supposed to listen to me. And we forget that a lot of us are still with a mother and father here or a caregiver here on earth who still is worthy of honor. Honor. It's a command that's given to the Israelite community. It's a command that was to guide the formation of the kingdom. 
And the command assumes that the parents are worthy of this honor as ones who are also living in submission to Yahweh. These parents who were to be honored, they're also named. They are also named among the kingdom of priests that the Lord was calling into covenant and community with himself. And as we honor or magnify the name of Yahweh, so too are we to honor or fill up and make heavy the names of our family. In this way, we honor our parents. And we see this in Proverbs over and over again, not bringing shame to our mother or father, but honoring. We are to be careful to bring honor to our families by rightly relating to and worshiping God and then with our interactions uh, with those that he places us in community with. Community is vital to the formation of God's covenant people. And this next grouping of commands, it shows us what honor and what loving one another will require within our community. Look at verse 13. These are pretty good things to keep in mind, friends. You shall not murder. That's a good one for us. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to him. These are the commands that lay the foundation of a community that is forming with God at the center. A community that worships God alone. A community that is committed to rightly relating to God and pursuing righteousness and justice with one another. A kingdom of priests in covenant with their father God, motivated to live a life of love, broken and poured out towards God and one another, humble, gentle, kind, filled with great faith and great hope. It's those kinds of communities, friends, that stand and will stand in stark contrast to every other community of people in this world. Those patterns, those behaviors, those are very countercultural in today's world. I think we would agree. Pride is celebrated. Hopelessness seems to be ever before us. Faithlessness. Gentleness, is there much of that left in our world today? How about kindness? Oh. We are to look different. Israel was to look different. Could this be an image of one of the primary ways that the church could function and have effectiveness as salt and light in the world today? So how did the people respond? These were the Ten Commandments. How did they respond? Look at verse 18. God presents them, or they're presented with these commands. Moses eventually will bring them down. We will get to all of the, what happens there, and it's a whole mess we know. We'll get there in a few weeks. All the people were seeing the thundering and the lightning. They heard the sound of the horn. They saw the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled with fear and kept their distance. They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak with us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be may be before you so that you do not sin. The people kept their distance, but Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. 
there's this visual and powerful manifestation of God's presence on the mountain. And it was serving the people as a reminder that God was with them. He was near to them in the wilderness. He was available to them as their God. And Moses gives two reasons for God's appearance. First, it was to test the people. That they would see, that they would hear, and that they would listen. And in doing so, they would prove themselves as his people. Yes, you are our God. We belong to you. We're listening. We're following. Then secondly, God's appearance was to firmly establish in the minds and hearts of the people the constancy of his abiding presence. He was with them so that they may not sin. And here, here you see God, he's engaging in this scene, all of the senses of the people to show his splendor and his glory, his power and his might. Look at the, the adjectives. The people hear the thunder. They see the lightning. They hear the horn. They can see and they can smell, perhaps even taste the smoke on the mountain. They can feel the mountain tremble. They can hear the voice of God. They see this thick darkness. This is truly a God like no other God that they had ever experienced in Egypt. This is a God who should be feared in a way that keeps his people from sin. And church, friends, when our gazes are fixed on the beauty of God and his wonder and his awe, and we are captivated by his majesty and his love and his grace and his presence, we have little time or space left to sin against him or one another. How, how many of you, don't please don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever sinned by staying solely focused on God? With your gaze, with your hands, with the commitments and attitudes of your heart, with, with your behaviors, with the patterns of your life. It's hard to sin when we're consumed by the power and the wonder and the might and the majesty of God. It's next to impossible to sin against him and against one another. When he is moving and he is guiding our every decision, our every action. And so the people are fearing God and they're motivated to worship him alone. The next scene, God is going to reiterate the second command to Moses and then he begins to describe how he wants the people to honor and worship him. Look at verse 24. You must make for me an altar made of earth. This is God speaking to Moses. And you will sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your cattle in every place where I cause my name to be honored. I love that. Isn't that great? And every place where I cause my name to be honored. I will come to you and I will bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you must not build it of stone shaped with tools. For if you use your tool on it, you've defiled it. And you must not go up the steps to my altar so that your nakedness is not exposed. The surrounding nations, the Egyptians and those who uh, kind of were all around the Israelites in the wilderness we know from archaeological research that they would build these elaborate altars to their gods with cut stones, 
even sometimes made of these giant staircases that would ascend to the altar. God did not demand or require this big outward display. Rather, he was much more interested in what was happening inside of his people. What happens in here is so much more important, and I'm pointing into my heart. That's what God sees. The living God did not need his creation to defend his honor with elaborate places of worship. He was able by his own strength, by his own might, to cause his name, his own name to be honored with just the simplest of structures. Wherever his children would commit to worshiping him and following in his ways, they were to build a simple altar made from the earth. God's greatness, friends, it's a reminder that his greatness, his goodness, it does not depend on our human effort. Amen? He doesn't need us. What a wonderful act of love and grace and mercy that he chooses to use us and work through us, but it doesn't depend on us. The glory and the honor of God's name exists as a truth apart from human defense. He can make his greatness known. He's able to do it. And isn't it amazing that oftentimes he does it through the simple, through the weak, and through the foolish. You see, the design and the construction of the altar points us to the person of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2, just listen. He sprouted up like a twig before God. Like a root out of parched soil, he came. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. The twig from the earth grew as a root out of parched soil and became like a stone. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am laying a stone in Zion, an approved stone set in place as a precious cornerstone for the foundation. The one who maintains his faith will not panic. That discarded stone, it would become the chief Cornerstone, Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders discarded has become what? The cornerstone. Acts 4.11-12, Paul saw this. He proclaimed this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven, given among people, by which we must be saved. The altar points us to Christ. It's simple, not elaborate, but beautiful and powerful. So what do we do with the law today? We know that the law reveals and displays for us our own inadequacy. We understand that. We know that we could not fulfill it. And the people of Jesus' day, they did all sorts of crazy things with it. 
At the time of Jesus' arrival, the people of Israel had divided over and over again in their understanding, interpretation, and application of the law. There were sects within sects, S-E-C-T-S, okay, within divisions, within divisions, within divisions of Judaism. There were Pharisees, and within the Pharisees, there were different varying interpretations of the laws, so many. And the Pharisees, they saw things differently than the Sadducees, who had their own group and their own different way of relating to and understanding the law. And, oh, by the way, the Sadducees and the Pharisees saw things differently than the Essenes, who had their own way of relating to and interpreting and applying and understanding the law. And all of them saw things very differently from the zealots of the day who had their own way of understanding and interpreting and relating to the law. And all of these people, even within those camps, had divisions upon divisions upon divisions. And there were rabbis and scholars. And what do we do with this one? What do we do with that one? Six hundred and some laws. And what do you think it did to the people of Israel? (sighs) And sometimes, church... We do the same with the law today. We pile on interpretations. Pile on human understanding. Pile on, pile on, pile on. And all of the questions, all of the different interpretations, all the different schools of thought from all the different rabbis, who was right, who was wrong, who had the authority to determine what the law was all about. There was one person. You know what his name was? Jesus! Thank goodness he was there. Right? He could set them straight. And in an act... Let me tell you how shocking this would have been. Maybe how I just described it helped to kind of set this up. It would have shocked all four groups of Jesus' day when he said that he could summarize the whole law and wrap it up in two commands. You want to talk about a shocking statement? Generation after generation after generation of all different ways of understanding and relating to 600 and some laws. And Jesus says, here are the two that you need. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbors as you love yourself. Could you imagine why there's so many stories in the scripture of people coming to try to justify themselves? (laughs) Because they had built their entire lives on their understandings and interpretations of the law. And in a few sentences, Jesus went, How's it feel when someone pokes a block out of our comfortably held positions? It leaves us staggering a bit. 
And this is how the people responded. Some of them were very angry to the point of actually putting Jesus on the cross. You see, Jesus' words were revolutionary. They were revolutionary then, and they remain revolutionary for the church today. This is the law. The law when Jesus says, a new command I give you. The law that we are to display and that we are to live by. It's the law that we have been founded on and commanded to fulfill. For the follower of Jesus today, our lives are to align with the priorities of Jesus. And his priority is love. And I know that, that, that sometimes we hear that and we think, oh, here we go again, Pastor Chris. He's hoping love, baby. You know, like, and, 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 you know, like, that couldn't be further from the truth about what Jesus is saying here. And if we think that, we have not for a moment understood what this looks like in our lives. Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Oh, my Oh, that's not hard. It's not easy. That's hard. That's not comfortable. It's so uncomfortable to be broken and poured out vessels before God and one another to lay down our lives. That is love. Greater love have no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. And I don't know about you, but the last time I had to lay down my life, it was not an easy endeavor. And yes, we can't do this on our own strength. We can't fulfill the law. We couldn't fulfill the law. The law stood as a curse because we failed. We failed. We will continue to fail. We need Jesus. He is in us. He is with us. He is both the just, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, and the justifier, the one who can justify us and make us right before God. This is supernatural, friends. Why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of Chris. Because I can't do it. We can't do it. We need His help every single day, every single moment. This is my declaration of dependence. Lord, I need you. I am a sinner. I mess up every single day. You can ask my wife and kids. I don't love them well every day. I wish I did. I wish I could stand here before you and tell you I love them perfectly every day. Just perfectly. I don't. I make mistakes. Man, I need the Lord. I need His help. I need His forgiveness. I need His mercy. And I'm so thankful that He gives me His grace and His peace and His love and His mercy each and every day. And he's, His abiding presence is with me and carries me through some of the most difficult and trying times I ever thought I would ever experience in parenthood. Things that I never, ever imagined would ever be part of this journey that are. And man, do I need the Lord's help every minute of the day. Jesus is the rock. Amen? 
He is the sure foundation who fulfills the law and destroyed its curse. And his life paves the way for us to be given the right to be called children of God. What a loving, graceful thing that he's done. This is Israel's wilderness. But there's a new kingdom of priests in Christ Jesus. His church. One that is supposed to uphold and fulfill the commands that he gave. Love God. Love one another. And the law of God is most powerfully displayed in the testimonies of the lives of those who call him father. Children living with great faith, hope, and love as we navigate the wilderness of this world. Team, will you come? As we close our time today, I want to pray, but I also wanted to end it with an image of our wilderness. You see the wilderness there, that was Israel's. Calvary Monument Bible Church, situated in Paradise, Pennsylvania, that's ours. How is God forming us? How is God calling us to exist as salt and light in this space that he's planted us in? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that we have a faithful guide in your word. We're so thankful, Lord, that Jesus came and fulfilled what we couldn't and upheld what we could not. He satisfied the requirements of the law perfectly. Where we failed, he succeeded. And the penalty that was due to us for our failure, he took upon himself. He went to the cross. He died. He rose. And Lord, we know he is coming again. And we can't wait. We're excited for that. But Lord, in the meantime, you have us here for a purpose. You have us here for a reason. There is a cause. This is not an accident. And the people that you've placed us in community with are not there accidentally or just by some happenstance. You have every person situated in our lives exactly where you want them to be. And so, Lord, the challenge is how do we live faithfully? How do we apply the new command of love and function as salt and light? in the lives of each and every one of those people so that they might look at our lives and they might hear the words of our mouth and recognize the transforming power of the gospel. There's a better way to live in this world and it looks so much like your son Jesus. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that throughout the rest of this week as we contemplate the season of Easter and the sacrifice that has been made, Lord, help us to look like Christ, to live like Him. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.